Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. Sam Perm's coming up next week. Uh, it's coming up next week if we keep pretending that the episode is recorded the day it's released, but I think that we should be honest with our listeners and admit that Purim is in two weeks. Well, the fourth wall has been demolished. Uh, I feel a bit naked standing here, but the point stands. Purim is upon us. Purim is rapidly approaching. For listeners who didn't grow up in a particular context, do you think we could maybe tell folks the general story of Purim? Oh, yeah. It's one of the celebrations of a failed genocide against the Jewish people. King Ahasuerus of Persia, I believe. I think uh, it was Persia. Yeah. Do, you have, do you have any idea of the time frame? I read something once that some historians believe Ahasuerus to actually be Xerxes I, huh. uh, king of Persia. So whenever uh, he would have reigned. Yeah, and he decides to annihilate all the Jews in his kingdom. Because he has this evil um, uh, lieutenant in his in his ensemble named Haman. Yeah, it's not it's not the king's fault. He's just being manipulated by an evil guy in his employment, apparently. But anyway, incidentally, some people argue that Hitler was related to Haman. I mean, that's a whole other that's a whole, whole different discussion. Uh, but anyway, to, so to give a very short summary here, uh, <laughs> there's a man named Mordechai who whose daughter ascends to becoming the queen of Persia, one of uh, Ahasuerus's wives, and together. Esther, his daughter, and Mordecai are able to thwart the plan and save the Jews. Correct. Also, she might be his niece. Like, he might be her uncle. Oh, I believe yeah. there's also ambiguous think, relations no, between no, no. the two of them. I think you're right. I think it is an uncle-niece yeah. relationship, not a father-daughter. But basically, know. Esther saves the day, mm-hmm. and then Haman and all of his children get hanged. Yeah, at the end of the story. That is the triumphant end of the story. So what Purim is, is a day where you're supposed to celebrate the fact that the Jews survived. And I believe you're supposed to get as intoxicated as possible so as not to differentiate between the protagonist, hero, Mordechai, and the villain, Haman. Anyway, Sam, you have any Purim plans? Uh, I don't. Maybe this could be a public appeal if anyone's listening. Invite Sam to your Purim party. Yeah, or David. I have plans. Do you? Yeah. What are you doing? It's a long story. It has to do with buying lot different types of Gruggers from different stores. I mean, we can talk about it after. It's not that uh, for people who don't know, what is a Grugger? It's a noisemaker. When they read what's called Megillat Esther. Uh, which is the, the, the text upon which the story is written. Yeah. When, when reading that, every time they say Haman's name, people, particularly children, are encouraged to blot out the name of Haman literally in the moment by making noise. And they have these particular noisemakers that are common. They're called Gruggers. We have pretty much met the community radio station standards for JuCon. Okay, so we can continue onward here. Don't worry, CQT, we've got you covered. In case we didn't quite meet the measure, if anyone wants to send us Mishloch uh, Mandat, just send an email to Trey. Or just send it to CQT. Find out their address on, on uh, Google and uh, send it over. Yeah, care of David and Sam. So Sam, what do we have for people on this 15th episode? So the focus this week is going to be on the Canadian Jewish News, the Jewish National Fund, and Canada Park. Yeah, we have uh, Tyler Levitan from Independent Jewish Voices can talk a bit about the experience that their organization has had trying to publish any uh, articles in the Canadian Jewish News. And uh, we also have Ismail Zaid on the show, a longtime activist uh, for over 40 years based at Halifax, fighting for uh, the right of return. I was going to talk a bit about uh, the details of Canada Park as well. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 6th of Adar 2, 5776. If you listen to the show for any time over two minutes 
you might be aware that the Canadian Jewish News, the foremost and only Jewish paper in Canada, is a uh, particular target. They're the only national Jewish newspaper in the country. Now, if you scroll back in your podcast feed a bunch of episodes, maybe to three or four, you might even come across an interview that we did with the editor of said publication. We had him on the show to talk about some of the changes that had happened at the paper because it was bought several years ago after almost going under, and they presented the newer version of the paper as a more liberal, progressive, inclusive entity, and we wanted to talk about that project. Yeah, there was this particular moment actually uh, right before the Canadian election where it seemed like it reached its apex of this version of the paper, where it was positioning itself as much more liberal, much more open to dissenting voices. Um, And there actually were some uh, liberal Zionist voices in there that we weren't used to seeing as much. But right after the election happened, we noticed it sort of dived off and became, to our eyes, a lot more reactionary, having a lot more articles that were much more militantly in opposition to BDS, equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism on a much more regular basis. And we started to see those occasional leftist voices be even more uh, pushed out to the margins. Yeah, I would point out that at one point on the, I think it's still actually on the website, there's a video, one of the only videos on the website is a speech given by Jewish Defense League leader Mayor Weinstein, known hate group, spewing racist nonsense, and that is given prominence on the Canadian Jewish News website. Yeah, so it's within this context that independent Jewish voices were having some trouble getting things published in the paper. So we got in touch with Tyler Levitan, who's the campaign's coordinator for Independent Jewish Voices Canada, to talk about his Huffington Post article, The Canadian Jewish Establishment Favors Anything But Debate. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm a huge fan of your show. It's, uh, it's really funny, and your analysis is always on point, so it's an honor to be here. Uh, we can end the interview now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so, Tyler, I, I read your article in the Huffington Post about independent Jewish voices and the experience that you all have had with the Canadian Jewish News about trying to publish articles. Can you talk a bit about the most recent conflict that happened between you and the editor of the paper regarding the Jewish National Fund? So this has actually been kind of this ongoing issue. As you said, it's been something that we've been dealing with for a couple of years, I'd say at least, of trying to get different commentary published in the Canadian Jewish News coming from an independent Jewish Voices member, and it hasn't been successful. I mean, I, I usually don't try very hard in pushing this because I've gotten a pretty clear answer from the editor, Yoni Goldstein, that he's not willing to go there. I feel, in a sense, that, that not necessarily independent Jewish Voices, but that the alternative voice is entitled to some sort of space in their paper. Um, and there was a scenario that arose, and, and I thought that this was kind of an opportunity to kind of push for the CJN to allow for an alternative critical voice to be published and not even necessarily independent Jewish voices. So the issue of the JNF, what happened was the former Canadian ambassador to Israel, Alan Baker, um, had a piece published and and the piece was on Canada Park. So uh, we got in touch with Yoni, um, or I should say I got in touch with Yoni on on behalf of independent Jewish voices, the editor of, of the CJN and told him that this is a very clear, non-factual representation of the issue. There was no mention of the fact that Kenda Park is covering over ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages, that the villagers have been wanting to return for decades, and the JNF hasn't even acknowledged that this has happened to them. They hide this really unethical foundation of, of their flagship project from donors in Canada who continue to donate to this project. And so it, it, it just seemed like an opportunity where we can really push 
for Yoni to provide an alternative space. It doesn't necessarily have to be an independent Jewish voices response. We are, we're actually pushing for Ismail Zaid, who I believe we'll be interviewing later on in the segment, who's from the village of Beit Nuba, which is one of the three Palestinian villages ethnically cleansed, which made way for Canada Park to be established. And uh, Yoni was, was completely disinterested. There was also at least one letter to the editor sent in, and Yoni wouldn't publish that letter. The, the CJN, I, I think on the whole, since Yoni came on as the editor, has definitely been more open to hearing alternative voices. But the fact that they are not willing to provide these alternative voices with, with any kind of, of a venue in situations that are very clearly unfair just showed to me that this paper is moving in the wrong direction and they need to be called out publicly. Yeah, I feel like to me it kind of raises the question of what the mandate of the Canadian Jewish News is and what the paper conceives itself as because of how they're acting around this stuff. And I think it's important to note, like there was a Haaretz article about the paper that was published, uh, I think, a few weeks ago. And one of the things I noticed in it is that one of the prominent board members had a quote that said, those who don't support a Jewish and democratic state in Israel, we don't want to hear from them. And I wonder if the way that the Canadian Jewish News is organizing itself internally matches the way they're presenting themselves to its readership. Yeah, I would say that that's a pretty accurate way of putting it. Um, I mean, one of the examples, actually, that I have of the, of the CJN denying, I think, what was space that IGB was entitled to have was around that issue. Actually, we had organized, Independent Jewish Voices had organized a debate between Max Blumenthal and Mir Sukarov on that exact question, can Israel exist as both a Jewish and a democratic state? And it was a big success. It was a great debate. Uh, it was even televised by CPAC. And sure enough, right after it was televised and it got quite a bit of attention, the CJN published a piece by Gil Troy, who some of your listeners may be familiar with. He's a history professor, at least he was, to my knowledge, a history professor at McGill, and very quick to attack any kind of criticisms of Israel as being anti-Semitic and, and the typical kind of Hasbara talking points. So he wrote a piece that was really like that and uh, even leveled ad hominem attacks at the organizers of this debate without naming them. He said that, uh, that we were fools and that our thinking was part of a quote-unquote epidemic of idiocy. I mean, so it's just, just ridiculous stuff. So I thought in that situation, of course, independent Jewish voices should be entitled to at least respond to it and talk about the fact that, that there's actual merit to the, the argument that Israel can't exist as both a Jewish state and, and a liberal democracy at the same time. So they refused, you know, of course, we weren't allowed to publish that. So they, they really refused to engage in, in this question. One thing that I think is important to add here is for non-Canadian listeners is that the Canadian Jewish News is the only Jewish paper in Canada. Um, basically, there there used to be a more right-wing, B'nai B'rith-affiliated paper called the Jewish Tribune, but the CJN is now the only publication where Jewish ideas and events can really be engaged with. Yeah, and, and, and I think that it's also interesting that since Yoni Goldstein's taken over the paper, he's been marketing it as a more liberal paper, more open to new voices, and the fact that, that Tyler, you guys are seeing more of an exclusion happening simultaneously with this kind of raises the question of what that project's actually all about. Definitely. It's something that I've touched on in my piece as well, that mainstream Jewish organizations that claim to speak on behalf of Jews in Canada don't allow, of course, any kind of really criticism of Zionism from taking place. Uh, this claim that the paper is, is more liberal and progressive, uh, I, I really don't buy it. 
Yoni started off, I think, doing a decent job of at least identifying that there are alternative voices that exist. But that's not sufficient. There needs to be um, there needs to be acknowledgement that these voices are entitled to to have some sort of space to respond to allegations that are oftentimes baseless and based on ad hominem attacks, even, and that there's diversity views around Zionism in the Jewish community that's been happening for as long as Zionism has been around. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Before we let you go, we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about the project that you mentioned at the end of your Huffington Post article. Oh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I didn't make mention of that in the article, but um, I posted the article to a Facebook group, like a radical Jewish Facebook, Facebook oh, group. Okay. And, yeah, and I thought it made sense to kind of make a repository of instances in Canada of Jewish people who, who want to engage within mainstream Jewish spaces um, on the issue of Israel and Zionism in a way that typically not allowed, and instances of them being shut down, like marginalized in different ways. I think it's just important to, to have all these instances kind of cataloged so we can see um, how pervasive this issue is and we can use it in different ways to expose the Canadian Jewish establishment as they, they continue to push forward with this agenda. And ultimately, it gives us opportunities to you know, stand in solidarity with one another. I encourage people to, yeah, to send me uh, kind of the instances of this happening in, in your own life. It doesn't have to be necessarily with a newspaper, with a community center. It could be with a congregation. It could be at a school that you went to, whatever it might be. But different, different instances of being kind of marginalized because of your political views on Zionism. So my email address is tyler at ijvcanada.org. Just send me that in an email, and uh, I'll be in touch. I'm definitely open to ideas as how to use these uh, these instances in different ways. Just an idea kind of uh, popped up in my head as I was posting this Huffington Post piece to this Facebook group. Great. Thanks, Tyler. My hat has three corners. Three corners is my hat. It's time for Square. Welcome, listeners, to this segment of the podcast, wherein we give shkoyachs to various people, places, and entities. If you don't know what that means, shkoyach is short form for yeshrkoach, which is a form of congratulations to a person, a place, or a thing that me and Sam give each week on the show. Mr. David Zinman, what is your shkoyach? So my shkoyach for today goes to a group of activists who, on the night that we're recording this, which is exactly one week from the date it was released, uh, went to the Ruby Foos Hotel in Montreal. Before we go any further, David, I think we have to express the significance of Ruby Foos itself. So I can express what the significance of Ruby Foos is to my life, which is that when I was growing up in Thornhill, every time that my family would come to visit my grandparents on my father's side, we would stay in the Ruby Foos Hotel. Now... Just to add a little context from the other side, Quebec has had two referendums. Many Jewish Anglophones have left during those referendums. Many of them have gone to Ontario, particularly Toronto. Uh, David's family is a representative, I believe, of, of one of those ways of migration. Or my father is. Yeah. And Ruby Foos, for some reason, is one of those places that Toronto Jews who left Montreal always go to. So it's funny that the story is starting off at Ruby Foos. Yeah, so the reason the activists were gathered outside of the Ruby Foos Hotel is because the Jewish Defense League, who we mentioned earlier in the show, was holding an event in one of the rooms in the Ruby Foos Hotel to honor and host Paul Weston, 
who is a prominent fascist from Britain who has been involved with numerous fascist groups, including the English Defense League, which is a group that the Jewish Defense League in Toronto has hosted before. Lovely alliances that the Jewish Defense League has made with anti-Muslim and anti-Arab fascists. Yeah, and this and this event was actually co-organized, I believe, with Pegida. Or I don't actually know, is it Pegida or Pegida? I feel hard G, just because that's my experience with the German language. Yeah, with Pegida, who are another fascist organization who are much more uh, recently founded. I mean, they're based in Germany. I mean, they're from Germany, are they not? Yeah, but I think they were only founded a few years back. Oh, yeah. And every event they've tried to do in uh, Montreal so far has been met with a larger amount of anti-fascists yeah. at, at the event. And, was, and they were uh, either pushed out or the demo wasn't able to go according to plan. Anyway, the activists put a lot of pressure on the Ruby Foods Hotel and showed up outside the event to try to prevent it from happening. And the Ruby Foods revoked their ability to host it there at the last minute because of the pressure. Huh. And the activists won. That's great to hear. Yeah. So, Shkoyach to a group of about 40 Montreal anti-fascist activists. All right. That was a really good Shkoyach. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so, what's your Shkoyach for today? Oh, David, it's all convoluted. I, I I think I'm giving it to sports. I don't know. Wait. What do you, you're giving it to sports? Well, particular incidents. Let's just get into it. So, uh, okay. I feel the, the problem is, is it's not entirely disentangled as to one is more of an anti-Shkoyach and the other one is a reluctant Shkoyach. Okay, I don't understand what you mean, but please continue. Okay, I'll start with the anti-square. Okay. So we're going to basically start with me just putting out premises, and you have to tell me if you know about them or don't know about them, because it's going to require a little explaining. Okay, that sounds okay. Okay, the Montreal Canadiens. I'm, I'm familiar. Ice hockey. I'm familiar. Okay, um, the historical attachment of Quebec Francophone nationalism to the Montreal Canadiens. I am vaguely aware of this. Okay. Historically, the Montreal Canadiens had very many Quebec-born players. With the expansion of the Hockey League from about six teams to 30, and with the changes in this drafting system... Uh, they're all getting... The good players are getting bought up by their team? Yeah, I mean, it's just... It's, it's, it's a numbers game. Okay. But the Francophone media in Quebec is still very focused on the question of representation of Francophone Quebecers on the Montreal Canadiens. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and recently, uh, because of several injuries and a bunch of trades, the, the Canadiens had no... Francophone Quebecers on the team. Oh, really? For one or two games. Huh. And this became a, 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 a reason to write an extended article in the Journal de Montréal by one Réjean Tremblay. Who's that? Uh, he's just a sports journalist. Okay, so is that who you're giving your square to? No, that is the anti-square because he chose to describe the process of the Montreal Canadiens having less Francophone Quebec players on their team to the final solution. Wait, he said that that was the same as the Nazi genocide against Jewish people? Yes. He, he described the fact that there were two uh, Anglophone Ontario-born men who were running the team about 10 or 15 years ago, and he attributed their plan of eradication, he uses that word earlier in the paragraph, to enact a final solution of having no Francophone players on the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, I guess I see what he's doing there. No, but like this could have been a who's invoking the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, this this would usually go on our critically acclaimed who's invoking the Holocaust now segment. But yeah, no, I just thought it was that important to give him an anti square because uh, that's just ridiculous. Do you, like, was it clear that it was a conscious invocation of that? Or do you think it was just a phrase that he was using? I don't think that you use the word eradication and, and solution finale in the same sen- in the same mm. two sentences and not identify the ramifications of in- invoking those words. So, Réjean Tremblay, anti-Schoyach, to you. So, who's the uh, reluctant Schoyach to? The Schoyach is only reluctant because of where it's taking place, 
Uh, it's another hockey one, and I'm reluctant because it's uh, about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, I, I, okay. Cool. Yes. For our first-time listeners, Sam has an irrational hatred of all things related to the city of Toronto. I've used the term Mordor on this podcast before, and uh, I won't do it again, but I'll just tell you all that I've used the term before. So uh, who are you giving this uh, square to, Sam? I don't know if it goes to the team or the player, but uh, one Zach Hyman, a recent graduate of uh, Chat. Wait, do you know what that is? Uh, it's a Jewish school in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. No, my is sister it? went there. Okay, your sister went to it. For one year. Is your sister 23 by any chance? No, not that sister. Okay. Because uh, Zach Hyman, graduate of uh, Tannenbaum Chat, was recently lauded in the pages of the Canadian Jewish News for playing his first National Hockey League game with the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, so it's a square to him for making it to the big leagues? For making it to the National Hockey League. He even scored a goal the other day. I mean, do you know what his position is on BDS? Um, I don't. I feel like we could make a safe assumption as to what his position is on BDS, but maybe he'd surprise us both. Like he's pro BDS. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I mean, that's probably the opposite assumption we should be making. <laughs> but all the staff at Tannenbaum Chat are just thrilled. Huh. It, it feels like they don't often get to say that a graduate has moved on to the National Hockey League. Yeah, I think it's probably a really rare experience that anyone from chat goes on to be a professional athlete of any kind. I don't like that stereotype, David, but uh, we're going to let that slide a little bit. I think people like Zach Hyman and uh, other uh, impressive Jewish athletes continue to show us that the uh, stereotype about uh, Jewish athletes just is, uh, is an unfair one. As a uh, nebbish weakling myself, I'm pretty invested in that stereotype. Agree to disagree. I feel like it has bad ramifications, but I do understand that bro culture is not one that we would necessarily want to uh, invest ourselves in. Yeah, exactly. It's complicated, but I also think that the inverse of all Jews being weak and frail seems yeah, like a bad I, idea as well. No, I agree. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, this is a strange world indeed, but yeah. thanks for uh, giving me a glimpse into it. Yeah. So today for the interview, we're joined by Ismail Zaid. Yes. He was a professor at Dalhousie and has lived in Halifax for more than 40 years. He grew up in, in Palestine in Beit Nuba. Yeah, and he spent uh, over the last 40 years advocating for the right of return of uh, displaced Palestinians. And specifically, the land that he was from in Beit Nuba is part of the site on which Canada Park is built. Most people who listen to the podcast probably know what the Jewish National Fund is, but for those who don't, it's a quasi-governmental organization. It has been very implicated in the settler colonial project in Palestine from the early stages, in fact, acquiring land and ensuring that Jews are the only people who can use it. In Canada, it's a tax-deductible charitable organization. And there's been a lot of organizing over the years to take away that charitable status. Yeah, and Canada Park was a project the Jewish National Fund of Canada undertook in the 70s after raising about $15 million from Canadian Jewish donors. And the park was built on top of land from over three different West Bank villages whose populations were displaced during that war. It bears noting also that if you're a Canadian listener and you have received one of those trees for your birthday or for graduation or for any other life event, uh, the tree is most probably situated in that park. 
So to talk a bit about the park, his last 40 years of activism within Canada as well, uh, we're now joined by Ismail Zaid. Thanks so much for joining us today. That's okay. For listeners who don't know what Canada Park is, could you talk about it a little bit and, and describe when you first heard about that term being used? The Canada Park was built, obviously, on the ruins of the villages of Amoas and Yalu and on our own land in Beit Nuba. Uh, I first heard about it on um, December 5th, 1978. There was an article in the local newspaper here in Halifax, the Halifax Herald, which reported a, a dinner the night before uh, a banquet was held honoring a person, Peter Hershorn, and he was previously uh, chairman of the uh, Jewish National Fund in previous years. And, and the, this report in the newspaper spoke of honoring this gentleman for the humanitarian work in the creation of Canada Park. The banquet was attended by the Premier of Nova Scotia, the uh, Mayor of Halifax, and the Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. I was uh, horrified to see this, and I was very pained considering that to consider this as a humanitarian work and people being honored for doing this, helping in the destruction of these village people's homes to build recreation center and picnic areas for Israeli citizens. I thought that was horrible. And I wrote to, to all three people, the Lieutenant Governor and the Premier of Nova Scotia and the Mayor of Halifax. I, I heard only from the Lieutenant Governor and he said he was sorry to do this because he he didn't know the facts behind this, and he only attended it because he, gentleman, was a neighbor of his and so on. And he uh, expressed regret for that. And I wrote to the Revenue Canada ministers involved in this, expressing to them concern, how can a society with tax-deductible dollars, which is my dollars and yours, allowed an association, the Jewish National Fund, to commit war crimes. I mean, this, the destruction of these villages and the rebuilding of the recreation center is in violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. I mean, Article 53 of the Fourth Geneva Convention seeks an occupying power that destroys property belonging to people and so on is by definition a war crime. And here this was being honored by our distinguished politicians being involved in advocating for the right of return in the context of Canada being so complicit in displacing people, actually building a physical park, what has the experience been like of coming up against that? Well, this is the sad thing. We in this country brag about upholding international law and the Charter of the United Nations and human rights and so on. And yet when it comes to the Palestine-Israel conflict, we have an extraordinary record of being completely 
biased and no continuously supporting Israel in everything it does. I mean, the Israeli government is committing practices in the occupied territory, including home demolition, detaining people for months and years without trial or charge under this so-called administrative detention regulation, torture, humiliation, expropriation of property. These are in violation of virtually every article of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And the Fourth Geneva Convention is identified by international law, any violation is a war crime, and yet we allowed this to go on. I mean, there are prominent Israeli uh, people like Yuri Avneri, a former member of the Knesset. He said this is a war crime in, in his interview in the documentary that uh, was done by the Canadian CBC on the Fifth Estate documentary uh, on Canada Park, titled Park with No Peace, it was broadcast in 1991, October 1991. Similarly, Amos Kenan, who is also a prominent Israeli journalist, who was at the time of the destruction of the village of Beit Nuba, my own, he was there, and he said, we were told that there were orders to destroy these villages so that people are not allowed to come back, and we drove them out. Uh, this is uh, an incredible, I mean, and yet our government allows us to go on. You've been organizing in Canada for the last 40, 40 years or so. Have you noticed the last 10 or 15 years with BDS becoming a little more prominent? Have you noticed changes over the course of your organizing? To be frank with you, I do not think so, no. I haven't noticed any significant difference. I have had experiences on the odd politician who were expressing human rights feelings Senator Heath McCrory was one of those, and occasionally members of parliament, Libby Davis and DP and so on, spoken right. But the vast majority, I mean, I'm saddened that we were hoping that Justin Trudeau, new prime minister, will shift completely from the policies of Mr. Harper. And yet, sadly, we see uh, no significant change. I wrote to the Revenue Canada ministers and so on, repeatedly over the years. Um, and I was, uh, in part, supported by some politicians. Senator Heath McCrory from Prince Edward Island supported me, and there was also a member of Parliament from New Brunswick also spoke in my support and wrote it. But to my surprise, nothing came back to me. It took usually months, and I wrote back and said, I wrote to you six months ago or something like this, and they would say, well, they've been investigating, and then I ask when, what happened to the investigation, and then they say it's a confidential matter, we can't let you know what this is. And it went on for years and years, and repeatedly, and, and this is what was happening. A couple of months ago, United Nations uh, resolutions supporting the right of the Palestinian for self-determination, a fundamental right, uh, yet Canada, together with Israel and the United States and Micronesia and Marshall Islands, uh, voted against it. I mean, it's sad to see our country <laughs> lumped up uh, in groups like this. I mean, outside of the parliamentary context or the electoral political context, have you seen the attitudes of people changing around colonialism in Palestine? I think, yes. I think, generally speaking, more public support is there than, than it used to be. Do you think that's coming from a particular set of tactics, or do you think the public awareness has just... Uh... More public awareness. I think people, more people are getting to hear more of the facts. But it's still not a massive support, but it's helpful and promising.
So in your organizing that's been based out of Halifax, I imagine that you're talking about all these politicians that were able to come through for you. And I imagine for every one of those people, there's probably been a lot who haven't. I'm just wondering what it's like to be doing this over such a long period of time and having these people be people who are living in the same city as you. Well, yeah, I think there is some... I mean, we have a group in Halifax here called Canadians, Arabs, and Jews for Just Peace. And happily, many uh, prominent Jewish persons, professors and academicians and so on, are in the group and, and strongly support the right of the Palestinian people to right of self-determination and the right of refugees to return to their homes and opposing Israeli policies, which I listed, as I said. Well, Ismail, thanks so much for speaking with us about your experience doing this work in, uh, around Canada Park. Is there anything that you want to let people know who are learning about uh, the issue of Canada Park for the first time from specifically inside of the Canadian context? No, I think the only thing is that the destruction of people's homes, throwing them out on direct orders of the Prime Minister of Israel at that time, Yitzhak Rabin, he, in the documentary on the Fifth Estate, said that I ordered the destruction of these villages. Uh, I think this is sad, but people here have to be aware that our government should not allow the Jewish National Fund to continue to use our tax dollars constructing illegal structures and uh, in violation of international law. I think we should take a stand in upholding international law on the Charter of the United Nations. That is, I think, a fundamental right. Yeah, we'll definitely have a link as well to that Fifth Estate documentary in the show notes for today. So if anyone's listening would like to watch that, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great documentary from 1991 about this issue. Thanks again, Ismail, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was our interview with Ismail Zaid. The Independent Jewish Voices is actually organizing a pan-Canadian tour at the end of March and early April. Yeah, uh, Haider Abu Ghosh, who was one of the uh, Palestinian residents who was displaced from Imwas in 67 and subsequently had his village destroyed and turned into Canada Park, is doing a speaking tour about it, telling people a bit of the reality of the park and, and its relationship to colonialism in Palestine. So check out ijvcanada.org. And you can find out more about the speaking tour Uncovering Canada Park. Okay. I know that y'all are waiting for the recommendation. Been waiting the last 30 minutes to get to this point in the podcast where we suggest something that folks should look into this week. And our recommendation for today is a new issue of the Doikite zine, which is made by Jenna Brager, a friend of the show and an artistic contributor to the show. Made the logo for the show that features a picture of the two of us. It is actually a call for submissions, so it's the third iteration of the zine. It's due April 1st, 2016. Submissions should be sent to sassyfrasscircus at gmail.com. We will put this up on the website. But ultimately, it is a zine that focuses on the Yiddish concept of hearness. It's connected to the bund. I feel like people who are listening might actually be somewhat familiar with the term doikite. Yeah, and this issue is particularly trying to focus on topics relating to decolonization. Yeah, we will put the larger call it in the show notes. But if you're listening and interested and are engaged with some of the things that we talk about on the show, you probably would be someone who should uh, contribute. So that's it for the show today. And we'll see you in two weeks.
Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zimmerman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, which is located in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganagahaga territory. Thanks to Kira Page, Claire Hertig, and Sack Syndrome for the social media, graphic design, and music, respectively. You can follow us on the social medias, T-R-E-Y-F, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, if you like the show, give us a fantastic review on iTunes. And I can't think of anything else. Yeah, I think that's it. And they had this revamping and rebranding and uh, repositioning. I'm just saying words with re. <laughs> Refashioning. What, uh, so I said like rebranding. Yeah. Revamping. <laughs> You're stuck in a loop. <laughs> it's a nightmare. We can only say the same four yeah. words.